if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. This year, the Catholic bishops throughout the United States have launched what they are calling a three-year Eucharistic revival. And they've called upon Catholic pastors, teachers, and writers to educate people about the Eucharist, to equip them to better participate in it, and to excite them to come to Mass and receive the body and blood of Christ. And so, at Considering Catholicism, we've begun to do just that. Today's episode will be the tenth that we've done on the topic over just the last few months. In addition, I've written some articles, and I just completed a series of four teaching videos exploring the connection between the Eucharist and the season of Advent. You can find those on the ConsideringCatholicism.com website and on our Facebook page. Today, we're going to look at a curious phenomenon. Because according to a recent survey of self-professed Catholics, it seems that while many Catholics have stopped believing in the Church's teaching on the Eucharist, they've clung to other Catholic beliefs. In particular, the survey showed that they cling to belief in guardian angels. Now, that seemed weird to me. Because if you're unwilling to accept the presence of Christ on the altar, why would you still insist that God has an angel watching over you? So, Corey and I sat down to talk about what this might mean. Take a listen. And if you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions, send me an email. Greg at ConsideringCatholicism.com So, Corey, we've been doing this series on the Eucharist here on the podcast, and in conjunction with the Eucharistic revival that the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has called us to do over the next three years or right, three and right. a half years or whatnot. But um, today, I want to take a little bit different tact on this topic. We've talked a lot about what the Eucharist is. We've talked a lot about belief in the real presence in the Eucharist. Today, I want to talk about the opposite of that. What happens when people stop believing in the real presence in the Eucharist or never did believe it in the first place? What are the consequences of that? Mm -hmm. And we have this poll that came out, and we'll post the poll on the website, right. on the blog here with this episode, but it was a poll that was conducted, uh, commissioned by EWTN, conducted by a reputable polling organization, mm -hmm. and it found some pretty interesting and in some ways disturbing data. Do you want to share a little bit of those findings? Sure. So uh, it was a, a general beliefs poll um, of Catholics. 
Um, and there are a couple of uh, doctrines that they focused on particularly, um, especially in this article. Um, so they asked people about their belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And they also asked people about whether they believe in guardian angels. Um, and the, uh, the results about the real presence are pretty much in line with what we've seen from other polls. Um, so you have a, about 80% of Catholics who attend Mass weekly, so probably Sunday attenders, um, who believe in the real presence of Christ. Fairly high, obviously we want 100%. But, um, and then this figure, uh, it, it goes down to 61% among people who attend Mass only once a month. And then it drops even more to only 42% for those people who are only attending Mass a few times a year. And then it gets really low. It's only 17% of people who believe in the real presence if they never attend Mass. Um, and then there's another figure thrown in there of uh, 14% for those who attend once a year. So once, once your mass attendance is little to non-existent, your belief in the real presence is also real to not, little to non-existent. Now, I knew we just threw a bunch of numbers at everybody, mm -hmm. but you could almost plot those on a, on a curve or a straight line curve. So basically at the high end, people go to mass at least once a week, 80% of them, people go to mass once a year, 14% mm -hmm. belief in the real presence. Right. And so that's almost a straight line curve. Uh, curve downward. And it really creates a sort of inversely proportional relationship. The more you go to mass, the more likely you are to believe in the real presence. Right. The less you go to mass, the less likely you're to believe in the real presence. Exactly. Now let's stop there for just a second and ask about the causality of that, because that can go two ways. Mm -hmm. The one way is to assume that the less people go to mass, they stop believing in the real presence or they never hear it because they're not in mass. Mm -hmm. The other way to think of it is the causality goes the other direction, that the less people believe, the less likely, so the less likely they are to go. So right. what's driving their low mass attendance is that they never believed it in the first place. Or have stopped. Yeah. Or have stopped. And, and if we were to track that back, I did an episode earlier in this year uh, where we talked about statistics of what happened to Catholic, the Catholic Church right. in the United States over the last 60 years. And those were all from like USCCB uh, data. Mm -hmm. And what it showed was that you had this dramatic fall off in the 70s and the 80s and 90s and things like mass attendance. And I made the point in that episode that one wonders if you went back 50, 60 years, there were still... Uh, those people who didn't believe in the real presence, but social pressure, community mm -hmm. pressure, family pressure, you know, you went to church because it was expected of you. Right. And then what happened was when the society changes, it creates a permissiveness. You, in a sense, are given social permission to not go. Right. And then if you don't have to go, you don't because there's nothing compelling you to go. You don't believe that you're going to uh, meet and receive the real presence of Christ there. Or you don't care. Yeah. Or you don't care, so why, why yeah. would I go? And so it, it may, we don't know, it may be that there always were those people. In other words, we, we, in other words, we may be assuming that the belief in the real presence has fallen off, and that might be the case, or it may be that that lack of belief was always there, but in a sense it was masked by social custom and pressure 
to attend church. Right. And I would suspect that it's a little of both. Yeah. I mean, in any era, you're going to have people in the church, um, even faithfully attending mass who don't believe some of the key doctrines. I mean, you, you can't avoid having some people like that. Um, but I, I think it would be correct to say that that lack of belief has certainly expanded also in the oh, last few decades. I'm just posing the possibilities here, uh, but there's certainly a dynamic relationship. Right. The, the, I think the key point we want to make here is that the less someone believes in the real presence, the less likely they are to be in mass. Or to say it the other way, the less someone is in mass, the less likely are they to believe in the real presence. Right. That makes sense? Yeah, it does, because you're not going to go if you don't think it matters. We've, we've said right. that before. And, and so if you don't believe that it's really Christ um, that is present on the altar and that is being received in communion, then at some point, it's why bother? Well, it's one of the reasons why I think that sort of extremely progressive Christianity and extremely progressive Catholicism, Catholic Christianity, in a sense, is ultimately self-defeating. Mm -hmm. The church is empty. Uh, look at the Protestant denominations. The further they, way mo they moved away from biblical do doctrines, the mainline Protestant denominations, their attendance has plummeted. There are many of them that are only existing because they still own the building and there's a handful of people in the building. And that's true for a lot of Catholic churches around the country and parishes. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can look at the lack of vocations in dioceses. There are whole dioceses where they can't, you know, produce enough vocations to sustain the diocesan ministry. So the further you move away from those doctrinal truths, the less compelling the faith is and the less people are going to go because there's a sort of perception that there's no return on my investment of time. Right. I go to church and what do I get out of it? Well, and I think it's especially true of the Catholic Church that the doctrine on the Eucharist would be the linchpin in this because it is the center of our practice and our belief. Because there are plenty of Protestant churches that don't, I mean, most, um, that don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And I think whether somebody continues to go to that church or not will probably rise and fall on their belief in other things. Right. That's it. Whatever your, mm -hmm. the doctrinal center for the church is. Right. In, in those evangelical churches, it's not the real presence. It's, you know, biblical infallibility, it's uh, the gospel, it's mission. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that when you look at those liberal mainline denominations that have moved away from biblical infallibility, right. Right. or at least biblical reliability, moved away from gospel preaching, moved away from mission, um, and they've become either a social club or a, essentially what Pope Francis called them, an in, an in, a badly funded NGO, mm -hmm. yeah. um, no, no one goes anymore. Right. So, Okay, so we're just establishing at this point in the episode this part of the poll because there's, or the survey mm -hmm. uh, that we're talking about because there's more to it. So, but just to kind of wrap this, low belief in the real presence, it correlates mm -hmm. with low attendance at mass right. and the, the causality between those is probably dynamic. Right. Right? Yep. Okay. But wait, there's more. Yes. Because the survey went on to find more. So why don't you unpack that? Yeah. So in addition to correlating belief in the real presence um, in the Eucharist with mass attendance, they also did the same thing with belief in guardian angels. Um, so they found that 74% of Catholics who attend mass once a month believe in guardian angels. 
and then it falls off to 65% for those who never attend mass or attend less than once a year. So you do have a fall off. People who attend mass little to none do believe in guardian angels less, but it's not nearly the fall off that you saw with the Eucharist. It's only about a 10% fall off. Yeah. I think the dramatic number is when you lay these two columns Mm -hmm. side by side. Here's kind of the bottom line. For those who attend mass only once a year, approximately, Mm -hmm. what you have is a 14% belief in the real presence. Yep. Among that same group, the once a year people, six, only 14% of them believe in the real presence, but 65% of them believe in, and I'm putting my fingers up in quotes marks here, <laughs> guardian angels. Right. So, so the bottom line of that is you, if you are a Catholic who is not attending mass, you are way more likely to believe in guardian angels than you are to believe in the real presence. Like five times more likely, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, off the, you never do math in public, but off <laughs> yeah. the top of my head, it's like five times more likely. It's, it's a big difference. Or four or five yeah. times more likely to believe in guardian angels four points up percent more likely. Mm-hmm. So the point is that there's almost an inversely proportional relationship mm-hmm. between belief in the real presence, mass attendance, and guardian angel belief. I mean, right? So you have this group of people who are, uh, attend mass every week mm-hmm. or every day, the vast majority of whom believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Right. You have at the other end a group of people. So you have these two curves or slopes on the graph almost pass each other. You have people who go to mass maybe once a year. Almost none of them believe in the real presence, but the majority of them, like two thirds of them do believe that they have a guardian angel who protects them from car crashes or whatever. Right, right, right. Right? So what does this mean? And now I titled this episode, and you, guys, you and I had a little bit of an argument <laughs> You and I had a, we a, had a debate. We yeah. had a little bit of an argument. Oh, we had a little yeah. bit of an argument about the title of this episode. And I'm learning that catchy titles catch listeners. So <laughs> I'm not beneath, I'm not, a, you're not above clickbait. Yes. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, so I'm not, a, so I'm not above clickbait here. Uh, but look, it, uh, I'm going to argue that, mm-hmm. that in a sense, it becomes kind of a, uh, the Eucharist versus guardian angels. But let's clarify. Right. In a sense. The real presence and guardian angels are both teachings of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So ideally, uh, a faithful Catholic believes in both. Right. Nevertheless, I argue that this phenomenon of these two curves that sort of pass each other on the graph can't be ignored because... There's something going on here that the less likely you are to believe in the real presence, the more likely you are to believe in guardian angels. There's mm-hmm. something going on there. And I think I know maybe what it is. And you and mm-hmm. I were talking about that before we started recording here. So can, have we come to some consensus about that? And I think it has mm-hmm. to do with a cho- quote from G.K. Chesterton. And you're a Chestertonian. So why don't you share that? Yeah, I, I, I think we have reached consensus about it. I think it comes down to the idea encapsulated in this quote and another distinction that we can make um, that we'll get to in a minute. Um, but the, the quote, Chesterton's talking about unbelief, and he says, if you stop believing in the teachings of the church, you don't start believing in nothing. You're open to believing in anything. Right. It creates a vacuum. Mm-hmm we have to believe in things or we're compelled to believe in things. And when you, so to, to make a fine point here, 
when you stop believing that Christ is really present in the Eucharist, it creates a vacuum in your a religious vacuum in you. Right. And I and think something is going to come and fill that vacuum. Right. And I, and I think it's borne out just we see at the macro level that as you know, Christian belief has declined in our society. It isn't as if we've ushered in a society of predominantly atheists. What you have is um, a, a sort of mishmash of different spiritualities that are coming together, and it's it's more of a of a spiritual buffet. People pick and choose, and they believe in any number of things rather than in a a formal um, organized organized religion. Now, this survey didn't do this, but if I could commission a survey if we had the budget to commission a survey <laughs> dear listeners if you would dear like to if you would uh, like... donate to the uh, <laughs> that's right <laughs> considering Catholicism <laughs> survey fund yeah here's um, what i would do i would uh tack on that i would love to see um belief in reincarnation mm-hmm. because i would be willing to bet you a nice seafood dinner <laughs> that uh that those that curve of people who stop believing they were present stop going to mass that you also see an increase in belief in things like reincarnation, aliens, Bigfoot, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Sure, sure. Um, and I think that goes back to this Chestertonian uh, idea that you're talking about, that it creates this vacuum and there's a spirit, there's a buffet of sort of beliefs and you assemble your own religion, a, a sort of custom you go down the buffet line and sort of, I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of this right. and a little bit of this, and you make yourself a plate. Yeah, I, I think that is what happens. And, and it comes down to between these two doctrines of the real presence and guardian angels are kind of um, a good representation of, um, on the one hand, the real presence, a, a challenging doctrine, um, both in terms of challenging to believe and it, and it makes demands of you. Um, and we can talk about that more in a minute. And the guardian angel doctrine, which I would argue in a distorted form, um, not in its true form, but in its popular distorted form, is an easy doctrine to believe, a comforting doctrine, one that doesn't really make any demands on you. I want to follow up on what you just said there for yeah. a second, because we've talked in the episode on transubstantiation, we've talked before about the Eucharist. And I've certainly heard, you know, when I was a Protestant, process of converting or whatever, that people have, have trouble believing in transubstantiation. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I reject it. And, and here's why I reject it. I don't think it's hard to believe in it. Once you explain it, uh, it's no harder to believe in the miracle of transubstantiation than in guardian angels or reincarnation. Why is it easier to believe that we're we have guardian angels who reincarnate us or whatever crazy spiritual uh, items have been laid on the buffet plate. Why is, are those things inherently more difficult to wrap your mind around than the notion of transubstantiation? I think the real presence is a hard doctrine to believe, not because it's hard to believe in the ontological change in the elements, but because it's hard to believe or hard to accept. the sacrifice of Christ and believe that a bloody Jew died uh, to love you, to save you, and you have to humble yourself before that because that takes you out of yourself. Because here's the deal. The Eucharist forces you to confront a God who gives himself for you but asks of you 
humility, and obedience. And that's the hard thing. Mm-hmm. Not some kind of, you know, uh, a, a rejection of Aristotelian or Thomistic uh, metaphysics. Most people don't even get that at all. Yeah, I mean, most people don't don't deal in those terms. Yeah, I, I agree with you that it's not harder to believe in because of the logic or the or the rational argument. Um, it, it, as you imply, a God who can create the universe, who can create guardian angels, who can heal people, can make Himself present in this way. It's it's not logically more difficult to believe. Um, it's I think it has been one of the church's most challenging doctrines for other reasons, as you say. Originally, it, it you mean think in John six of of Jesus's Jewish listeners who rejected it um, on the grounds of um, you know revulsion at the idea of of eating human flesh. They were rejecting also his divinity that was implied here. And today, I think you you also have a, a dynamic at play where it's easier to believe in guardian angels that you you can't see. Um, and so you can kind of believe what you want about them versus um, the transubstantiation of the elements in the mass, which, first of all, you have a physical thing that you can see. And so you're being told something about this physical object that is not available to your senses. And also the, the church is, is teaching you a, a specific set of doctrines about this that's very well fleshed out, no pun intended, but also demands that you um, that you do things that if we're going to receive the Eucharist, we need to do so in a state of grace that then involves um, keeping oneself from sin, going to con- going to confession and being absolved of sin. Uh, it, it, and all of that implies a, a living and active relationship with Christ and with the church. Whereas, again, I think in the distorted um, popular understanding of guardian angels, it doesn't demand any of any of that. It, it it's it's very comfortable with disaffiliation. Yeah, absolutely. I actually want to go upstream. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is considering Catholicism, but it's also Catholic Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I, in, this, in the instance of what we're talking about here, I want to go upstream because I think that there's the same disaffection in the Protestant world today. Mm-hmm. And it's about the cross. It's about really believing in the cross. And that's an ancient thing. Paul says, right, that the cross is a stumbling block to to Jews Jews. and foolishness to the Greeks. Right. He says, the only gospel that I have ever preached and the only gospel that should be ever preached is Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. It has always been hard Mm -hmm. to accept that. Now, what you're saying and what we're talking about, too, is the particular belief of the real presence in Christ. But I think that that the rejection of that is a subset of the larger rejection of Christ. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And, 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 and that's because 2000 years ago when Paul was preaching in, you know, in, in Athens or Corinth or wherever, it was objectionable to humble yourself before the sacrifice of Christ to receive that grace and mercy with the implication of accepting my sin, right? Going to the foot of the cross has always been hard. And when we look at the folks who have moved away from the church, whether the Catholic churches or the Protestant churches, it falls under the larger umbrella of rejection of the cross, rejection of the crucified Christ. And there's the particular rejection of the real presence. But I, again, I think that's, that's a subset of the larger issue. However, to your point, mm-hmm. 
what happens, and I want to explore this real quick, is when we move into this belief in guardian angels, what's the disconnect? And I think you're getting at it. I'll just lay it out how I see it, Mm -hmm. is that their understanding of guardian angels is not the doctrinal understanding of Catholic Church, which teaches guardian angels, Mm -hmm. right? But it's, I think, incredible to believe that these folks who don't attend Mass and don't either understand or believe the doctrines of the Eucharist have a nuanced doctrinal understanding of right. guardian angels. That, that their understanding is correct. Right? I think it's folk religion. And here's what I think it's about. Coming to the cross requires me to humble myself before God. Mm-hmm. It's about me putting Christ first. When you move away from that, what happens is you replace that with the God who puts you first. Mm-hmm. And this the kind of guardian angels that I think these folks believe in is, are, are neither angels, because like a lot of these people, the popular folk religion is that when people die, they become an angel. Yep. You've right? heard I mean, that that's before. right. I mean, I've talked to people, I've been at funerals and like, well, you know, dad is, you know, now a guardian angel watching over me or my bro- my dead brother is now my guardian angel watching over me. And you go, what? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that God sends these guardian angels to do things like protect me from car, car accidents or whatnot. Right. Mm-hmm. And that I did an episode earlier this year in the worldview series on moralistic therapeutic deism, this belief that there is a God up there who's not particularly involved in our lives, who doesn't mm-hmm. particularly ask anything from us, but wants us to be happy. And wants to affirm us. Affirm us and be well. And so mm-hmm what happens in that Chestertonian way, when we stop believing in a God who comes down, incarnates himself, dies on a cross, asks for us to confess our sin and humble ourselves before him so that we can be like him and take up our own cross, Mm -hmm. join him in death so that we can join him in life, right? Mm -hmm. What we do is we start believing in a sort of distant, nice God who, uh, you know, sins, you know, uh, who, who uses his superpowers to protect us from things like car accidents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think- you know, what there was a country song, Jesus take the wheel kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think what you're saying is, is exactly right because we, we have to remember that, of course, the, the cross of Christ is central in the Eucharist. When, when mass is celebrated, Christ's sacrifice on the cross is, is represented, is made present for us. And so an encounter with Christ in the Eucharist, especially in the context of the mass, is, an, is a very tangible reminder of his sacrifice and the fact that we are to unite ourselves with his sacrifice, take up our own cross, like you said. And with this folk belief in guardian angels, the guardian, I mean, well, let me put it this way. A real guardian angel is here to help you take off your cross, take up your cross and right. follow Christ and, and to help guide you to heaven. If that involves helping to save you from a car crash, it may be, I mean, that's within the realm of possibility. Or to stand or to, with you in your suffering. Right, exactly. Uh, to, it, it might be that that's your way to heaven through the suffering of that. Um, and so the guardian angel, the real guardian angel isn't there just to, you know, kind of tweak reality to make things Well, your nice guardian angel you. doesn't necessarily hover over you. He stands before God mm-hmm. interceding and praying for you. Well, too. well that's the thing is guardian angels in, in a sense are facing both ways, primarily towards God and also towards you in order to intervene and, and help you, but always with the idea of helping you to take up your cross and walk towards the goal, which is heaven. But 
the the folk belief in guardian angel is is simply to um, make things better and nicer for me. It's not to take up my cross. The guardian angel in that view doesn't help me to take up, up my cross. He's, he's essentially helping me to cop out of taking up my cross. Yes. So to summarize this, the cross mm-hmm. and the Eucharist is about, for me existentially, it's about Christ. Mm-hmm. The gift of Christ and the reason why it's the Eucharist, it's Thanksgiving, is by making it about Christ, because it is, it in a sense, gifts it back to me by grace, mm-hmm. right? So there's a sense in which going to the Eucharist kind of is ultimately about, not ultimately about me, but, it, but I become a beneficiary. Right, you become a part of it. Yeah. I become a part of it, but it's ultimately about worshiping Christ and seeing the lamb, you know, slain before the eternal throne of God on the altar, right? Mm-hmm. The further I move away from that altar described in, you know, John, Revelation chapter five, where John sees the lamb slain, the further I move away from that, the more it becomes about me, mm-hmm. God sort of exists to serve me. Right. And I mean, surprise, surprise, a religion I designed myself serves me. Yeah, right. C.S. Lewis said this once. I, I think it was in Mere Christianity. He said, if you were going to invent a religion, you wouldn't invent Christianity. Right. one to make you comfortable. Yeah. Right. It's not a religion that makes you comfortable. It's a religion that convicts you of your sin, causes, you know, calls you to humble yourself before Christ and to be elevated in him. I would invent a religion, he said, that made me comfortable by thinking that there was a happy, nice God who sort of took care of me. And I think that's what we see going on here. And so to sort of bring this to conclusion, the, this inverse relationship between belief in the Eucharist and the centrality of the cross, the centrality of the gospel, and the centrality of me, I think that's part of what explains this gap between people attending Mass, belief in the Eucharist, and all these other things. And then the question becomes, how do we deal with that as the church? How do we evangelize people? How do we share back? And it's not as simple as telling them to come back to church, because in some sense, they aren't going to come back to church until there is a conversion of their heart Mm -hmm. and a conversion of their belief in which they start, it stops being less about them and more about God. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, our great challenge in evangelization and sharing the gospel. But that's exactly the challenge it's been since. Paul was running around the Greek cities of his day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks, Corey. Yep. And thank we'll you, Greg. Talk again soon. Bye. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.